Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is another very special and interesting episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, and I am joined by Ian Sigalo, co-founder of venture capital firm Greg Croft. He sits on the board of public.com. There's a lot going on in the fintech and brokerage space that Ian is uniquely positioned to talk about, and we're excited to welcome him on the show. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's our pleasure. And for those of you who may not know, Greg Croft is one of the block's many investors. So full disclosure there. We don't want any of the Twitter trolls coming after us for that. But let's let's start a little bit with your background. As I've said on previous episodes of The Scoop, we are trying to expand the scope of the show and by bringing on voices from outside the crypto market, fintech, the trading world, and other corners of finance. And so, Ian, for folks who may not be familiar with your decades-long career in venture capital investing, and specifically at Graycroft. Walk us through a little bit about your background. Sure. So I'm originally from Ohio, moved out to the East Coast in 1997 for college at MIT, and then I entered the venture capital business right out of college in 2001. And I've been a VC ever since, uh, with the exception of two years in business school at Columbia. So I started in venture capital up in Boston at a fund called Boston Millennia Partners. I spent three years there. They did life sciences, technology, enterprise software, photonics and optical switches, a broad array of of high-tech investing. Then I went to business school and uh, I co-founded a payments business called Strong Data, which was an encryption company, and then came out of business school in 2006, was introduced to Alan Patrikoff, who was, I guess, one of the, the founding fathers of the U.S. venture capital industry. Alan, in the late 1960s, had started a firm called Alan Patrikoff Associates with $2 million dollars. And over his lengthy career, he had built that business into a firm that's now called Apex, uh, which is um, an anagram for Alan Patrikoff Associates International. 
And Apex manages today about, I think, north of 50 billion. And Alan's lengthy career, he had invested in Apple Computer and AOL, and he was really known well for being a media investor. So he and I met up in 06. And then the third founding partner is a woman named Dana Settle. Dana had had at the time, I think, eight years of prior venture experience at Mayfield, which is a big Silicon Valley fund. So anyway, the the three of us teamed up and set off to launch Graycroft, uh, Dana in Los Angeles, and Alan and I were in New York. And uh, fast forward, we now manage just shy of $2 billion at Graycroft. So we've you know, we've built quite a firm over the course of the last 14 years. You know, my particular background, the deals I'm most known for are probably fintech companies and then some consumer businesses. But on the fintech side, I was an angel investor in, in Venmo, which I think probably 40 plus million U.S. consumers are familiar with and use on a regular basis. Investor in Yield Street. Uh, investor in Flutterwave, which is a payments API business in Africa, invested in Braintree, which is a competitor stripe in the US that was bought by eBay at the time, the PayPal business unit, and then Public, which we're here to talk about. And my colleagues on the West Coast also invested in a number of great fintech companies like Acorns and Deposit Solutions. So that really provides you with a great high-level vantage point and view of the fintech space. And I think Graycroft is pretty well respected for being involved in deals in that space. Shifting to public.com for a second, right? The Series B, which included some celebrities like Will Smith, really helped usher the firm into the fintech spotlight. And it was also on the heels of a number of developments in the market, um, which is seeing business model changes, consolidation, and a heightened level of competition. From your perspective, when you look at a market like that, Ian, and you see deep-pocketed firms like Morgan Stanley buying up eBay, and you see you know companies like Robinhood, which kind of dominate market share and have millions of customers, when you have a small upstart like Public coming on the scene, as an investor, what do you look for in terms of differentiation? And what did you find in terms of differentiation that made you comfortable with getting in on that deal? So um, I'll give you an analogy to start, and then we'll talk about where public's going specifically. So when we looked at Venmo, which was now nine years ago, and invested, people thought we were pretty crazy because you had PayPal already in market providing a free peer-to-peer service. So the notion of a core functionality of sending money to other people existed. And what we saw as the difference at the time with Venmo was that Venmo built a social network that happened to allow people to send money. And if you log into Venmo, you can see this feed of transactions And that feed was really a unique insight on top of the core payment architecture of Venmo. And subsequently, now that Venmo is part of PayPal, kind of innovation around financial services on top of the Venmo platform um, has stalled a bit. And I think that's created an opportunity for a number of 
emergent new banks to come up and brokerages to come up because Venmo could have occupied the social aspect for all of those spaces, but it's it has stayed in peer-to-peer money movement. So what we believe at Graycroft is that there is an opportunity, just like there was when Venmo was founded, to create a multiplayer game inside of stock brokerage around a feed and to build the first socially native brokerage application in the world. And what happens when you do it right? So it's unlikely that somebody who was not built to be social can go back and retroactively build a social application. I've seen very little success in that business model in other networks and other industries. Because when you build something that's social from the ground up, you focus on a distinct feature set and you grow through community. And when you grow through community, the nature of your social graph is different than a brokerage that was built through paid user acquisition. So the thesis around public was that if you if you have a feed that is front and center and you build a community where people can talk to each other about trades and learn from one another about trades, you can create a unique beast in the financial services realm where it's a social network where people happen to buy and sell stocks. And I think that's in spite of the fact that you know there's a startup for everything in the world and particularly in financial services, I think that's a currently unoccupied space. Yeah, if you look at a firm like Robinhood, they're more so taking the approach of how do we make stock trading look like Amazon or make the customer feel like they're using a service like that rather than a traditional stock broker service. In this case, public.com, you guys are trying to make it look more like a social media feed. Yeah, I mean, I, I go even a step further. Robinhood's core innovation was zero fee trading. And zero fee trading existed, but only for institutional investors. Interactive brokers, I think, was one of the first to offer zero fee trading. And Robinhood brought zero fee into the retail segment. So you know, those of us on this call, if we're not managing a hedge fund or we're not an RIA, Robinhood was the way to go. And now virtually everybody has some version of a zero fee product, but they built their business to millions of users quickly on, hey, come here because it's a zero fee trading environment. And so that that's kind of like table stakes today. And our view was that uh, public had to be zero fee because virtually everybody in brokerage is now zero fee. But on top of that, it also had to be natively social because Robinhood is not remotely social. And if we won that social space, we could actually build a very interesting company without having to spend $300 per user in Facebook advertising to grow our community. And to your point, it's not something that can be easily replicated or retroactively implemented. Everyone's going to zero. Everyone is trying to lure in users by offering fractional stocks. I was reading the Wall Street Journal just two days ago and Charles Schwab had a full page ad on 
their slices feature that they've just rolled out. I think it's Schwab Slices TM. So there are a lot of things that everyone can do. But to your point, this is one thing that can't be easily replicated. I'd be curious to know what the firm's growth has looked like in the midst of this ongoing economic crisis. We've seen other firms like TD Ameritrade, for instance, since they brought cost commissions rather to zero, the number of daily trades on their platform has skyrocketed, right? From around a million a day to over 3 million by March, 2020. So has public seen that level of growth in terms of from when the company first rolled out in September to then? Yeah, I mean, we're growing um, 80% month on month. So on an annual basis, it's, it's an incomprehensible level of compounding. And what's nice is that it is almost all organic. So we've got a community that's working and referring new users and very active in creating dialogue. It's exactly what you'd want to see for a company at this stage. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the growth we've seen across the broker landscape has been fueled by new traders, right? There's not a lot of stuff to do when you're stuck at home 24-7 aside from watch the news or or trade on the news. Um, to what degree have you guys been, you know, stealing customers from other platforms versus just new blood to the stock market world? Yeah, I would guess that many of the users who've joined, I don't have a statistic on this, but I'm guessing that many, if not the majority, this is their first brokerage account. You know, we'll have to see over time. Well, first off, how big of a share we can get from incumbents and what the switching costs look like. One of the things that has happened over the course of the past 12 months is that services like Plaid have made it much easier to move accounts over digitally. And I think that will lower the switching costs from brokerage platforms. And I think people are going to, to move their trading into venues where their friends are and where they get ideas and where they have trust and confidence in the platform and the trade execution. Well, that's been key. I mean, to a degree, you guys benefit from seeing some of the hiccups and mistakes of incumbent players, right? Um, Robinhood has had its fair share looking back the past two years from a few botched product launches to very recently, right? The inability for them to keep the platform online during hyper-volatile trading days. So in a sense, that kind of provides any new firm, whether it's public.com or any other new entrant to the market, with a sort of rule book, if you will, of what maybe not to do or how to avoid certain missteps. It's interesting. I think on, on the highest volume, highest volatility days, both up and down, Robinhood has unfortunately been down on four of the top five days this year. I mean, something, something insane like that. I, you know, it's, it's been, if you were out of the market on a day when the stock market's up 7%, that you shouldn't trade on that platform. Yet they were still able to grow their customer base by over 3 million people um, in the first part of the year, uh, which they announced when they, announce their latest fundraise, um, picking up an additional 280 
million dollars. So, I mean, there is a degree of stickiness to some of these platforms. And as much as folks in the media like me look at something like these outages that you're talking about and just think, how can you stay on a platform like that? Can it be easily solved by refunding them money, giving them credits and kind of just moving on? Because their growth has continued unabated. Yeah, I mean, they're they're spending quite a bit of money in user acquisition. I, I think the market is a lot bigger than people realize. I also think, and this is the second tricky piece of this, most people who are who are active traders in the market have their money in a number of different places. So they'll have a Robinhood account. They'll also have a Schwab account. They may also have a Fidelity and a TD Ameritrade. You know, you just have a lot of brokerage accounts because it's relatively easy to set them up. And Robinhood in particular, uh, just like public, is really easy to set up. So the question starts to become not like, do I close my account out? But do I trust the platform for, uh, for most of my assets or not? And I think a lot of people feel like, well, I I set the account up, I'll leave it. But over time, I'm going to deploy new assets into these other venues where I just have more trust that the systems will work. Mm -hmm. And there's also a question of how much money is being held in these new accounts, right? I mean, the question of what an active account is, is we don't know how much money are in some of these accounts. Um, that's right. And we don't know what active account means. It could be, you know, one trade a month, one trade a week. Um, so those figures that are often, and you know, this from being an investor in FinTech, a lot of it is games with numbers, right? Um, that's right. Well, you don't know if, um, if they're even referring to funded accounts versus accounts that have been set up, but don't have capital in them. A hundred percent. So I guess looking towards the rest of the year, what is sort of public strategy to continue to grow and onboard new customers? And at this point, what are we working with in terms of the number of clients? So um, in terms of product strategy and and where to go from here, they've launched recently um, profile pages for influencers who are building communities inside of public. And it's a set of authoring tools that enables somebody who has a large following to basically have those followers through a permissioned gateway inside of the public UI. So I don't have to post it, post my commentary or thoughts to everybody. I can have private forums, Uh, kind of like a, a direct message service, but broader. And then in addition to that, they're launching um, incremental social features, all of which kind of are next generation feed items that enable you to have threaded conversations more easily visible, um, encourage people to comment on one another's trades, because that's it's really kind of the near term set of core functionality. Longer term, there are a series of premium features that public is launching. So, you know, we don't, at public, we don't make uh, money on selling order flow, right? So we're not, 
selling our trade volume to hedge funds. And instead, I think we plan to have a series of, of premium features that people can pick and choose from, from an assorted menu. And those features will include at some point margin accounts, they'll include uh, pre-market and post-market trades. The public markets are broadly available from 9.30 to 4.30, but there is extended hours trading with interesting volume that um, for well-carried stocks like Amazon, et cetera, there's, you could actually get reasonable pricing in, in the pre-market and the post-market. So you can extend the hours of trading for people. And there's a bunch of other you know, features that they're rolling out on top of that. I think all of that just, some of those features are available elsewhere, obviously, but all of it adds adds a set of tools that more active traders want to see in the platform. And it also makes their goals to make the public market more addressable for beginning traders who come in and they don't have a deep knowledge about what stocks they want to buy in advance. So how do you go about discovery in an organic way inside the platform? And there's a bunch of work that the founders are doing on that topic too. You mentioned the firm isn't making money on routing its order flow, which has been a very hot button topic in the industry. It's not just Robinhood, right, that that does this. It's virtually every player in the market, but Robinhood has kind of been picked on for it the most. It's interesting. I actually recently noticed a updated regulatory filing that shows up to 70% of its orders are of, of NYSE listed stocks are being routed to Citadel Security. So they've ramped up the percentage that they're routing to that particular firm. And the question, right, is how do we know those firms are going to act in the best interest of the end client? Um, I guess real quick, uh, before we kind of venture into some other topics, how is public.com executing its orders and managing um, execution for trades? So we, we have our own uh, broker dealer internally. And then in addition to our internal BD, our custodian is Apex, which is one of the, the major custodians in the market. And then for trade execution, you know, we go to exchanges and you know, buy and sell at the exchange. So, I guess the difference between the model at public versus, as you alluded to, selling shares to Citadel, the exchanges will pay you for, for volume to the extent you cross over and make a trade, you know, based upon maker-taker rules, et cetera. But you're not selling your order flow to a hedge fund that has a point of view on the market. And um, that hedge fund is inevitably extracting alpha directly by sitting across the trades from all the retail investors on some of these platforms. I think though, I mean, we're talking about a, a de minimis amount on every single trade, you know, fractions of a cent sometimes, um, but still it, it, it doesn't feel good as a retail investor to know that you're directly facing off against Citadel, which has better trade execution and more, more knowledge about the market than you do. Uh, and they're kind of front running you on every trade. Yeah, there's definitely a level of uncomfortability with with that sort of situation. I guess shifting gears a little bit, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are on the broader fintech market as an investor, given the 
degree of uncertainty in the market. I mean, stocks are, are rallying and the VIX is approaching um, what we might call normal levels, but there is still a large amount of economic uncertainty hanging over the market. What has that meant for the VC world and specifically investing in fintech companies in particular? Venture capitalists are long-term investors, right? We've got, we have a 10-year horizon and it's both a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that we don't have to mark our books every day like a hedge fund. And as a result, you can look at long-term trends and be very patient and grow companies over a much longer horizon. And you can deficit finance projects for years and years waiting for the market to be right and for the product to be right. I think the curse is, you know, you don't have liquidity, obviously, and you have to get into the right trends early enough in the cycle so that you can profit from them, not too late and not when they are overbought and everybody thinks it, this is the next great thing because at that point you're locked up at an outrageously high valuation for a very long time. As we think about fintech investing, you know, there are a lot of areas within fintech where we've developed kind of a 10-year thesis around where the world is going. And we've played out a couple areas of this already. So you know, we followed merchant payment processing and API-based payment processing. Since we did Braintree in the US, we've subsequently done Flutterwave in Nigeria, which covers Africa. And we, we funded a company out of Shenzhen, China called Ika, Y-E-A-H-K-A, which happened to go public, I think on Monday, it started listing this week on the Hong Kong Stock Index. So we've, we've followed kind of global innovation and merchant processing. We're still spending time in merchant processing. We're also in Recurly, which is a recurring billing company. We're in Fortumo, which is a carrier billing company. But right now, kind of the obvious spaces have kind of been played out. We've, we did peer-to-peer and consumer products. So we did Venmo. We did Verse in, in Europe. We've done uh, wealth management and robo-advisory. Uh, we spent a bunch of time in insurance, and we're continuing to. So we funded Branch. We funded Pi, Workers' Comp, Home and Auto, all of which are compulsory products. So our initial thesis on InsureTech was cover the, the products that you have to buy where you have users who are price sensitive shopping online and you can deliver a best of breed uh, digital order flow and digital, um, a digital sign up process. The next phase in insurance, um, I think are going to be B2B to C products like annuities that are sold through channels. And we're spending a bunch of time looking at that market at the moment. And somebody will emerge and build interesting, um, interesting products there. We're looking at um, a financial services software that powers the next generation of RIAs and wealth managers. There's there's a company called Vice in New York that's gotten a bunch of, of press recently in that space. There's Adapar, which was funded by um, uh, VCs on the West Coast. And um, where else is interesting? There's probably a half dozen other interesting aspects of fintech, all of which have kind of really good 10-year time horizons on them. And you can get an early to a space that hasn't formed yet. 
which is where we're really spending our time as venture investors. Is there anything about this economic and health crisis that has changed your thesis or maybe has introduced new opportunities for Graycroft? The, the crisis has accelerated a lot of trends and there's a bunch of obvious ones, right? So uh, online grocery, online pharmacy, major studio releases, direct to consumer, work from home and all of the, the software distributed workforce. These were all trending topics prior to the crisis. Although I think the crisis has pulled forward five years of demand and maybe more than that in certain categories. And, you know, as an early stage investor, we had investments in virtually all of those spaces. The new things that have emerged, you know, there's, I, I guess there's platforms like Patreon and others that we've not been investors in that have experienced tremendous growth um, as part of the economic dislocation has hit um, people in their community. It feels like there's going to be a remaking of a lot of money is going to exchange hands from baby boomers to millennials over the course of the next 10 years. And I think that trend is actually accelerating because what I saw in my own experience, a lot of baby boomers who had retired, um, they saw the volatility in the public market earlier this year and they just got out of equities. You know, I can't be in the public market anymore. It's just, it's too hard to withstand the ups and downs. And people who sold at the start of the COVID crisis, you know, they, they lost a very significant percentage of their portfolio value. And the people who were buying were largely the retail investors on sites like Public and Robinhood and others. And retail has led the pullback first. Because I think people, there are a lot of money and a lot of interest on the sidelines waiting to get into the stock market and waiting for the right time. So we've seen that trend happening. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You've, you've been seeing on Robinhood traders pouring into the airline stocks and airline ETFs, even while larger investors are dumping it, which has raised some interesting questions about whether or not these platforms are beneficial for small investors if if they're sort of FOMOing into plunging stocks? Well, uh, I, I think it depends upon whether or not those investors have a point of view on long term. Is Delta Airlines and American Airlines, are these going to be viable long term businesses? You know, Warren Buffett gets out of the airline industry and a, a lot of other people follow suit because they view him as an oracle. On the flip side, you know, at some point, I believe people will fly again. <laughs> and if you're willing to hold it long enough and the business can survive the, the impact of COVID, you may have gotten in at a really good valuation on a 10-year horizon. The really hard part about public equity investing is that the institutional investor class is now measured every day. If you operate a hedge fund and you're down for too many consecutive days, you start to get redemptions. And that creates herd mentality, which has um, significant impacts on the performance and the strategies of many hedge funds. And it creates an opportunity 
for patient capital. And as a retail investor, um, you're not going to beat a hedge fund with a time horizon of an hour on a stock, right? You know, Renaissance or whomever is sitting out there with all of the exhaust data and all of the behavioral data in the world at their fingertips, they are going to figure out how this stock is going to perform in an hour or a week or two or three months. But if you want to, if you have a long-term point of view about an industry rebounding or about the long-term success of a sector of the U.S. economy, you can make long-term alpha. And the thing about long-term alpha is it takes a long time. So we'll see what happens in three to five years. Well, it's funny. I just checked the stock price for Delta and we're up 13% over the last five excuse me, 13% today and 30% over the last five days. So maybe some of these retail traders might be onto something. I kind of want to go back to my last question about maybe like what new opportunities this crisis sort of unveils. Um, There were a lot of questions in late March, mid-March, when we were trying to figure out how we can get money into the hands of Americans about the government's ability to do that, right? We're really good at funneling money to Wall Street, maybe not as good at funneling money to Main Street. And it kind of revealed the inability for us to do things like universal basic income and to make those payments to folks. In your seat, are you seeing any companies trying to tackle that problem or create sort of new innovations that can innovate the antiquated process of distributing checks via snail mail? I think that the government has launched a program for, it it was hundreds of dollars, I believe, in prepaid credit cards that people were getting, prepaid debit cards. I remember reading about it. I've I've not followed the story that closely, but they had a vendor who was providing them with this service. So there are better alternatives to sending snail mail checks. Those are still, of course, debit cards that are mailed. So... Uh, they're using the U.S. Postal Service to deliver them. The infrastructure clearly exists with companies like Square and Venmo um, to fund tens, if not hundreds of millions of consumer accounts digitally. For whatever reason, the government hasn't gone to private companies and asked to use their infrastructure to do this because I'm quite confident that if... Um, President Trump called up Jack Dorsey at Square and said, I'd like to set up a Square cash account for every single American and fund them X hundred dollars. Square would say, absolutely. Right. But the technology exists. I just don't think the government has the will to use it or the desire to use it. And it's even, you know, there, there are arguments ongoing now about whether the duration and extent of unemployment benefits is too great because it defers. Um, some people make more money on unemployment than they made when they were employed. Do they want to go back to work? And um, I mean, this is, uh, this is like Republican philosophy that I don't necessarily agree with, which will to where you started this could blow up on social media. But I think that's kind of short-sighted from the government's perspective. But long-term, we are seeing some businesses, you know, in our portfolio and others that are having a hard time getting labor back because people at the moment through unemployment benefits are getting paid 
enough that they feel like they don't need to work. But at some point, those benefits end and then um, you know, people go back. Well, that raises another interesting question about how a venture capital firm helps shepherd their portfolio companies during these types of situations. You know, that's kind of in the crypto world, right? When when the ICO boom was happening, uh, there were people wearing t-shirts about the death of VCs and stuff like that. But obviously there is this huge component of a VC that extends far beyond just putting money on the table and extends into advice and helping folks um, address a market or address difficult times. So what has that been like? How has Graycroft helped its portfolio companies during during this crisis? It's really, you started this with a really interesting point around the death of the VC model. As a venture capitalist, we always compete against the commodity money. That hasn't changed. There are platforms like AngelList that have been around for a long time. And if, if your goal is to just get money, there are a lot of places to go and get it. But I, I think the core differentiation of every VC fund in America, the people who work there and the advice you get and the business development help and the network effect and the credentialing, because it, it should mean something when you take capital from Graycroft. And it should mean that we've reference checked you, we've done work on your business model, we believe that your company can be worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Those things help entrepreneurs immensely. It helps them uh, recruit and, and get talent into their company. It helps them get business development deals done because the partner on the other side knows that that firm has a deep-pocketed investor sitting behind it who's not only done his homework or her homework, but also has significant reserves to deploy against the company if the company needs the reserves. And I, I thought the crypto stuff was really funny, you know, the end of venture capital. Meanwhile, I was pitched an ICO every hour. So if there, are, there are always anarchists saying that the end is near, but even in crypto land, they were coming to venture capitalists and asking us for money. That's really interesting. I'm sure your inbox at the time was flooded as as many folks were during that crazy time. How does Graycroft approach the crypto market since we're on that topic? And has it become more appealing now that the hype has sort of died down and, and maybe the juxtaposition of Bitcoin, for instance, with its unique fixed supply and, and design against the Fed printing money um, has made it more attractive to at least some people. But maybe walk me through a little bit about how you guys approach the space and how that might have changed recently. I don't want to use the royal we for all of my Bitcoin comments. So I will keep it in first person on this topic because there are other people who will disagree with me inside the partnership, which is very healthy, by the way. I have never been a big believer personally in crypto. Bitcoin included, Ethereum included, they, they seemed like solutions designed for somewhat malicious purposes. And I, I never saw a necessity as a consumer to not have fiat currency. 
And then furthermore, just the Ethereum code base and all sorts of issues related to security and the scale of development and where it was at the time that Ethereum blew up and you know the, the valuations of these currency stacks went to the moon. So we've avoided tokens, but you know, investing in the next XYZ token business. There's an interesting underlying piece of technology around trustless net- networks and separating that from kind of cryptocurrency into blockchain and ledger technology, which I, th- I think they're very different things. So I, I separate the two in my mind. One is a piece of enterprise software and one is a, a consumer investment play. On the enterprise software side, there may someday be very interesting applications for trustless networks and blockchain and ledger-based systems. I do think that a lot of these applications at the moment, at some point need to be centralized just to be managed. And that of course blows up the whole protocol. I, I can see some edge cases in supply chain and other use cases emerging in certain data co-ops where blockchain could play a, a really pivotal role in unlocking a market that has previously been opposed to using a centralized system. And um, I don't have any great examples off the top of my mind, but I, I know that a few of our companies have experimented with new product initiatives that utilize blockchain. They have encountered some issues with you know, the technology in its current form because it's not really ready for enterprise scaling yet, but you know, they're, they're working through them and maybe in the next five years, there'll be a couple really interesting companies I can point to. You've been tweeting about, uh, you know, the crisis. The other day, something that you tweeted that got some pickup was about this mass exodus from New York that you're saying is underway. As a venture capitalist, how do you invest or how do you shape your thesis to capitalize on demographic social shift like folks moving out of the city? Yeah, I mean, and this is a really hard one, too. Um so, you know, I, I love New York City. I still live 10 miles north of the city and I miss it. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people who work for companies based in New York who don't need to be in an office environment all the time and, and could live anywhere and would prefer not to live in New York or even around New York. And I think what we're going to see is just a massive change in the way companies are organized and a greater percentage of people will work from home, work from home and work remotely and remotely could be quite far away from office headquarters. And, you know, as a venture capitalist, we've we've been investing really anywhere. I think 10 percent of our portfolios in the Bay Area broadly and 90 percent is everywhere else. We're probably 20% New York, 20% Southern California, 10% Bay Area, 50% everywhere else, including 23 or 24 U.S. states and I think 25 countries outside the U.S. What I have seen, and and this is true in, in very competitive markets, companies that have cost advantages that are durable can oftentimes win market share 
and outcompete other companies that have structurally higher costs. And in a startup, uh, about 70% of your, your monthly expenditure goes towards people cost. So if you're able to build a company and by virtue of the fact you've got um, a remote team or a workforce spread around the country or the world, and you, you have a structural advantage in cost compared to a competitor, you can charge less for the same product or perhaps even charge the same but have a better product because you've got double the developers working on it. And that can create a really meaningful difference in market formation and who ultimately gets uh, the prize of being the category defining company. The flip side to this is it's really hard to build great cultures remotely. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. And you know, I'd rather have one developer who is tremendous than five or six developers, maybe even 10 developers, who are mediocre. So you need to find really world-class talent that also wants to work remotely. And venture capital has always been a talent game. There's plenty of money in the world. We are not constrained by capital, we're constrained by talent. And I think part of the, the change with COVID is gonna be increasing internationalization of talent pools, more diversified workforces, and hopefully better talent attracted to startup companies because they'll be able to have you know, people in a thousand different places, all of whom are working from home, but contributing to a, a single company mission. You know, I, I guess we'll see. And I don't really know how that feeds directly into my investment thesis at the moment. Mm -hmm. Another relevant topic, I think, for not just the VC world, but across finance and technology is this question of increasing diversity and getting behind diverse founders, right? Which can be challenging because of just the way that the system is. People have often said to me, um, venture capitalists have often said to me that people is what they invest in first and foremost. Who the founders are is often one of the most critical elements. And, you know, bring up your Twitter again. You, you tweeted the other day about, you know, how often founders who have overcome huge obstacles in life, like criminal records or, or troubled childhoods, are often looked over by larger companies because of a headline or PR risk. How does how 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 do we overcome that? I, I tweeted that because I was really pissed off. Um, we've backed and I've backed an entrepreneur who um, who had committed a felony uh, fifteen years ago, and we were very very close on a large deal with an insurance company that's publicly traded, and the insurance company basically backed out in spite of having so many good data points because this entrepreneur 15 years prior had committed a felony and paid full restitution and the past is the past. And either, either you fundamentally believe that people can change and develop and grow or you don't. And I, I tend to have a long-term belief in people and I think people are pretty malleable and are also a product of their surroundings. And the, I don't believe that people are necessarily innately good or bad. And I think you can, you know, you can make a case that people can be, I'm struggling for the word, but when you come out of the criminal justice system and you're reformed, there's a word for that. 
and so that was the that was the background on my tweet. But the in terms of racial justice and in terms of diversity, we live in a world where capital is not allocated as efficiently as it should be, and um, there is opportunity everywhere to do better. And furthermore, you know, founders who are who are African-American face a much harder challenge in getting access to capital than founders who are white in this country. And there is an opportunity to invest behind them and, and build interesting businesses. And there's an opportunity even in my business, because you know, we at Greycroft hire two to three associates every year. And you know, we have we have a goal of hiring you know, diverse candidates at Greycroft, and we change people's lives. And every business, I think, has an opportunity and an obligation to do that. Because you know, I could take somebody out of a lot of different backgrounds, train them about venture capital for two to three years as an associate, and they become a venture capitalist. Uh, and they learn a skill set that's immensely valuable and have a toolkit for evaluating businesses that's immensely valuable. And so I, I just think about our role, what we can do at Greycroft, how we can be better. Um, you know, I can't control every company in the world, but I can control the ones that we invest in and I can control my own business. Yeah, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to bring in those folks and to open up our various worlds to a broader swath of the population and little by little remedy some of the issues that have underpinned our society for so long. I think that's a really relevant point to sort of wind down the conversation, Ian. But we really appreciate you coming on to share your perspective and hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.